It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And welcome to Car Con Carne. I'm James Van Ossel. Quick reminder, the Chicago Reader, the venerable Chicago Reader, the long-running free weekly in Chicago, the place where we all learned about which shows were coming where in Chicago for so long. Uh, their Best of Chicago 2020 poll is happening right now, and you can vote for a, a, a wide swath of categories. Awesome stuff, too. Car Con Carne is up for Best Music Podcast. You can find that in the Music and Nightlife section. And me, I'm up for Best Podcast Host in City Life. Chicago Reader's Best of Chicago 2020 poll, I believe, voting lasts for another week or so. Tonight on Car Con Carne, it is all about punk rock history. It is all about Lookout Records. Grant Lawrence is my guest. He is from the band The Smugglers. And he is hosting the Lookout Zoom Out live streaming series, which kicks off Sunday at 2 p.m. Central. Uh, good evening, Grant. Hello. Uh, you're in Vancouver. Hello, James. How are you? Thanks for having me on this show. Congratulations on your nomination. Is that Thank like you. something we vote on or yeah. what? Yeah. Okay. So now you're spreading that all, all over North America, That's the right. world. Going, yeah. going to the West Coast, going up north. Yeah. Right. Well, his- thanks a lot for having me on your car show that is now from your house. Right. And it's also a food show that involves no food. Right. It's so just- there's no food, there's no car, but there's still rock and roll. That's right. It's just a pack of lies is really what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> this is just a foundation of horseshit. That's all this the brand- is. COVID has thrown your branding into the, the tumble cycle. This, this is a branding test. Can the brand survive this radical of a departure? Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. I mean, there's 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 no car. There's no food. There's just us. So we'll, we'll see. There's just some punk rock legacy happening tonight. Yes. Lookout Records. I, I guess we can start there to provide context. Lookout Records to me was just one of those definitive punk labels, late 80s through the 90s and the early aughts. Uh, they brought so many bands to the world's attention. I mean, they introduced the world to Green Day. They introduced Operation Ivy and Mr. T Experience, Pansy Division, the Queers. Uh, they had the Donnas on their label. From a Chicago perspective, which is where we are right now, Gaza Strippers, Sludgeworth, Troubled Hubble, The Reputation, Screeching Weasel, The Riverdales, The Vindictives, even in Blackouts. Not a bad roster. And of course, yeah. uh, from Canada, the Smugglers were on the label. Why, yeah. why Lookout? Why, why or to explain the, 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 the meaning of Lookout Records? Well, why Lookout is because it was a dream come true to be an independent band in the 1990s and be on Lookout Records. I mean, I, in my opinion, it was better than being on any major label, that's for sure. Uh, you know, Lookout Records, for my start, I was a kid, late 80s, early 90s, and I was like any kid who was getting into punk rock and alternative music. I would go downtown from my suburb and on the bus and I would go to the record stores and I would leaf through the record bins. And back then, it wasn't so much the band you trusted. Uh, it was the label. The label was the, the trademark of quality. 
So, you know, of course, sub pop records uh, starting right around that time as well in the late 80s. Uh, you know, you you knew if you saw that iconic sub pop brand, okay, it's probably going to be heavy. It's probably going to be pretty grungy. If you're into that kind of thing, it was a pretty good bet. And for Lookout, if you were into melodic pop punk, kind of Ramones, bubblecore, uh, that kind of sound, it it was it was absolute heaven. And so what I started doing was I, I started basically buying any uh, record that had that iconic lookout logo on the back with the two eyes looking up and the exclamation mark, one of the most famous uh, logos uh, in punk rock history. And uh, it was, it, it drew me in. And so I had a band that was signed to a, a great Seattle label called Pop Lama, the other pop in the Seattle scene, the much smaller Pop Lama label uh, that had been around longer than Sub Pop, a, a famous infamous, let's say, for bands like the Young Fresh Fellows mm-hmm. and the Fastbacks. And later on, they, they hit it big with the presidents right. of the United States of America. Uh, but so we were on that label. But the bands on that label were kind of older than us we felt like the kids on that label and we just loved lookout records and we uh were on a tour down the west coast one time in the early 90s and we were playing with a very very like-minded band called the Ne'er Do Wells who morphed into the high fives they wore suits like the smugglers and uh we were with another Canadian band called Cub and we met Larry Livermore the uh the infamous Sven Gali of Lookout, the uh, the Malcolm McLaren of the mm-hmm. West Coast, the man with the golden ears, because Lookout wasn't just a label. I mean, Lookout really popularized the genre of pop punk to the entire world. Larry Livermore did what so many people do. Uh, so many of these scene leaders from around the world they recognize that something is going on in their scene that deserves to be documented, that deserves permanence. And you see this with great record labels all over the world. You saw it with Motown in Detroit. You saw it with Stiff Records in London, Sub Pop in Seattle, and and in Berkeley, the East Bay, with the burgeoning punk scene in the late 80s and early 90s, it was Larry saying, and David Hayes, his partner, we have to put this on record. And they found success really early with Operation Ivy, uh, the Mr. T experience who kind of wrote the blueprint I was for the modern day. They're kind of the Rosetta Stone, aren't they? They are. The, the Mr. T experience don't really get enough credit. Uh, Dr. Frank and those guys, they really kind of created the blueprint of the sardonic, uh, what we know of as as pop punk today with the chords and the attitude and the melody. And it was Green Day who kind of went, was going to Gilman Street and was seeing bands like Op Ivy and the Mr. T Experience. And they kind of blended, they didn't do the ska, but they blended it into an almost simplified and and, um, arguably more powerful uh, power trio version of it and, and took over the world. But so the smugglers, it, it all started through community and it all started through friendship. And Larry became, he's still a, a friend to this day. And uh, by, we met him in around, I'd say 
94. So this is by, like Lookout Records ascended. This is yeah, like, like peak, but peak but Larry wasn't hanging out, you know, at, at Madison Square Garden with with Green Day. He was hanging out with he was hanging out at, at like the at the entry level of the scene. He was hanging out at the all ages shows and he was hanging out at Gilman and he was going on tour with bands like the queers. And so when these bands started coming through Vancouver, the smugglers would play with them and we got to be better and better friends. And the high fives were very instrumental in bringing the smugglers on board. Uh, and, and cub came along too. the other Canadians signing to lookout records. And for a series of years in the nineties, the, the kind of middle chunk of the nineties there, it was like, a kind of golden era of, of rock and roll. Uh, it, it was just an unbelievable community, an unbelievable family of bands. And it's something that I just, it, it was one of the greatest times of my life that uh, I treasure very much. I don't really care about the record sales or anything like that because all that fades, uh, but it was our highest point of record sales, but it was the fans and the community and the friends and the bands that came out of Lookout Records, that was the most special thing about it. And you said it. I mean, community is what I think of when I think of indie labels, when I think of punk rock. And just to draw further comparisons to labels like Lookout that kind of built those communities, identified a, a scene to, to go all in on. You know, here in Chicago, Wax Tracks, very similar, started by two guys, uh, blew up the industrial scene, just you know, bringing that genre to the rest of the world. Right. And, you know, as far as, you know, labels where you just you bought anything they put out because you trusted them, there was that curation you just knew was going to be spot on. I mean, here in Chicago, we had Touch and Go, which right. played big on a national level. And what I liked about Touch and Go, and I, I'm wondering if Lookout was the same, everything was a handshake deal. It wasn't these scary Satan contracts where you, you sign your life away and you don't actually make any money. It was just like, hey, we'll do right by you. You do right by us. We're good, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of handshake deals at Lookout and Larry, it was all about community. It was all about friendship. But I believe, if I recall correctly, that the Lookout deal was 60-40. So the artist took 60 and the label took 40%. And that pretty much existed for years and years and years. And it worked. And uh, everybody was relatively happy with that until the wheels started to fall off in the late 20, yeah not late 90s it was it was good until around um the early 2000s i would say when did larry leave larry left in 1997 and it was a major shock i couldn't believe it you know, he was a, our champion i mean we had really good friends at that label the label manager molly newman one of the founders of the Riot Girl movement ended up there. We knew her from the Olympia days in the early 90s. So it was thrilling that she ended up there. Uh, she went to Evergreen and Olympia, which is where we met her with her band Bratmobile. And um, Kathy Bauer, a, a punk from St. Louis, Missouri, came out and she was working at the label. Uh, you know, she put on the one tour that Operation Ivy did of the United States. She put on the St. Louis show. So she's got major cred and so and then uh taggy lee worked at lookout she's the daughter of long gone john uh, the incredible guy who runs sympathy for the record industry so there was all these amazing characters from the scene who just worked there 
And then there was all the bands. And so we, we felt uh, totally right at home, but then Larry left and I couldn't believe it. Like, you know, 96 was a banner banner year. I mean, here's three records four records that came out in 96 so oh god there's love is dead by the mr t experience uh their highest selling album i was gonna say and that's just that's their high watermark period yeah and then um when the queers went full bubblegum uh, beach boys on dope back down again 96 uh, often considered their best album Mm -hmm. and then there's pansy division uh wish i'd taken pictures often considered their best album. And then there was the one record that Cub released on Lookout, and that was Box of Hair, and that was also 1996. So there was all, as you say, these high watermark albums that were coming out one after the other, after the other, the Groovy Ghoulies had just been signed, and they just hit, they, they released World Contact Day in 1996, and they hit the ground running with Lookout. They were just ready to go. And they toured like maniacs. But then Larry, I, I was, I remember I was on, we were on tour at the Smugglers somewhere. And I called the label and I needed some records. And I also wanted to ask Larry for some advice because he had an open door policy and he was always available for advice. And he's a very, very smart guy when it comes to strategizing and, and uh, anything to do with the bands. And he just comes by it naturally. And I, I said, hey, is Larry there? And they said, no, he's, he's not here. And the, there was a sense of almost like a little bit of permanence in um, the person's voice who told me. And I said, well, where is he? When's he coming back? And the person said, he's not coming back. I'm like, what do you mean? He's gone for the day? No, he's gone forever. I'm like, where did he die? No, no, he's he he's left. He's left the company. And this is all, I was on some roadside payphone in Kansas or something like that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's gone. Like, what? he's the captain of the ship. He's the president of the label. What are you talking about? And so that was it. Larry left in 1997 to the shock of many. And, uh, you know, there's many a rumor about whatever his payout might have been because the stock was not quite at an all-time high but pretty high and uh but i guess he just thought well you know it was about 10 years for him and he thought oh i've done everything that i can do and he thought he was leaving um something that was in very good shape uh i think in my opinion uh in the hands of uh, chris applegren who had been long his protege, helper, assistant, manager, uh, artist. I mean, Chris Alpgren's done some of the most iconic uh, lookout record covers, including Kurt Plunk by Green Day. So it was essentially the torch was handed to Chris. But Chris was a very young guy, and uh, he's a friend of mine. Larry, both Larry and Chris are friends of mine to this day. But Chris was really young and uh, suddenly had this, like, multi-million dollar company just boom, here you go, go for it. And Larry was in, you know, his fifties or whatever and had, uh, had a savviness to him and uh, just a general um, high intelligence. And Chris is, is a genius too, but I would, in my opinion, say he's much more, more of an artistic genius, Uh, not exactly your, your, your business mogul, Mm -hmm. but all of a sudden he had it all on his lap and he had the, 
Green Day back catalog and the Screeching Weasel catalog and the Queers and the Donnas were just newly signed. So the Donnas actually kind of almost missed the Larry era completely. The Donnas were the first band to come along where they're like, because the, the, the jury was kind of out, like, will Lookout Records survive without Larry Livermore? And they answered that question with signing the Donnas and the Donnas exploded. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, big time, like American teenage rock and roll machine. And, and then the next one gets skin tight with the pink cover and the Donnas turned 21, like all those sold stratospheric numbers, you know, uh, surpassing screeching weasel and the queers or at least in that same realm of hundreds of thousands of records so that was a great sign you know i mean that was awesome and then but it it still just it still wasn't a lot uh, wasn't a, enough in the the long term to sustain the overhead that had uh, been created at the label well yeah there was a lot of public discord not to invoke another name but uh lots of public <laughs> stuff going on I, unpaid royalties high profile breaches of contract it was nine years ago this month that lookout officially wrapped it yeah up. yeah i think it was t- t- 2012 i was in france writing a book in the south of france how fancy is that super fancy uh, yeah i i had moved on but um, no, I was heartbroken when I heard that Lookout had finally closed the doors for good, but they were on life support for a while. And I think, you know, you mentioned Discord. I mean, I think Discord to this day is Ian Mackay. I mean, doing everything like it's been a, a solo operation or at least a, 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 a small operation for, for a long, long, long time. Whereas Lookout grew. Uh, they they had a big staff. They uh, had a, their own building. They opened a record store. They were, you know, it, it, there was offices. There was a, a lot of expenses. There was a lot of showcases. People were flying all over the place. And I think that overhead just grew and grew and sure. grew to the point where uh, there was problems paying the bills. Let's talk about another label. It was a couple of years after Lookout started that Fat Records launched. Yeah. Was it kind of like the Sharks and the Jets, Batman versus Superman, where the yeah. two camps pitted against each other? They, they weren't pitted against each other, but it was like Lookout was first. And then down in LA, there was Epitaph. And Epitaph was kind of a great label. I mean, awesome bands. Uh, hit it big early with The Offspring. Uh, but they were, I always thought, kind of more, and they, some of the guys on the label would disagree with me because, I, again, like my all-time favorite Canadian band was an epitaph band for years, the Weaker Thans. Uh, very respectable, everything, but it seemed like more of a kind of almost like a major label-esque type um, uh, setup, whereas Lookout just felt full-on community and that just could be my perspective of looking uh, down the i5 and then uh but you know they had rancid you know one of the greatest punk rock albums ever in my opinion uh and out come the wolves and they had no effects for a while and of course bad religion and uh a lot of great bands and but then i think that fat mike was like why don't i i you know there's there's a bunch of bands that aren't getting signed to Lookout, a bunch of bands that aren't getting signed to Epitaph. And he saw that there was a place 
for him to, to fit in there with another Winnipeg band, Propagandi, which became totally huge. In fact, uh, the smugglers have toured all over the world and, and the, the most common band shirt that I've ever seen in countries all over the world is Propagandi. That's my t-shirt trivia. Their t-shirts are the most widespread of any band I've ever seen, of any punk band, let's say, more than DOA, more than No Means No, definitely of any Canadian punk band, like absolutely number one. But so, yeah, there was a kind of like, oh, well, who do, you know, who's, oh, what, you know, Chick Stiggett didn't make it, good friends of mine as well, but Chick Stiggett didn't make it on to, to look out, you know, Larry didn't like the name, but Fat Records is no problem. Chick Stiggett went over to Fat, another Canadian. They, they did well with Canadian bands, Fat Records. Um, another Canadian band they brought on was the, uh, the Kilted Real Mackenzies, the Scottish punk band, and mm-hmm. did well by them for years and years. So it was, um, it felt a little different, maybe a little less Ramonesy. If the Ramones were kind of like the blueprint for Lookout, mm-hmm. uh, the maybe the maybe No Effects was the blueprint for for Fat. I'm I'm not sure because it did seem to be like a lot of those band that, that the types of bands ended up with Fat. But you know, really, Fat's still going. I mean, they they have never they've always been able to. To, to keep it going. And I have nothing but respect for that. I'm, I'm, I'm choked that lookout isn't around any longer. And it, just a quick reminder, this Sunday kicks off the series. It's lookout zoom out with Grant Lawrence hosting. It is an, ah, look at that. Uh, an online lookout records reunion show series. The first episode uh, features members of the Mr. T experience, pansy division, the queers cub, the crumbs, and of course the smugglers. I love the, uh, you're yes. the, the lookout yes. zoom out. A beautiful, a beautiful cardstock poster uh, that was designed by the aforementioned Chris Applegren. And so that's his uh, amazing uh, penmanship. And we are actually giving these beautiful posters. We're going to sell them too. I don't know. I have to figure out the postage to go all over the place Uh because there's people from all over the world that are um, going to this thing, which is one of the silver linings uh, of doing a, a thing online. But um, so we're, we're going to give these away to people that wear their old Lookout Records band shirts That's cool. to the Zoom out. And the other thing people keep asking me, they're like, well, is it like a podcast? Like, are you guys all doing like a roundtable discussion? Like, and, but that's not what it is. It's, it's more like um, it's, it's, a, it's like a rock and roll review. I'm, I'm introducing each one of these artists. And then they're performing live. They are playing oh, awesome. their songs I wasn't, live. I wasn't clear. On, I thought it was just kind of like this retrospective talking about the old days. That's even better. Yeah, no, they're they're <laughs> playing their music live. We have to somehow make that a little clearer in the future. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So we're going from like one artist to the next. It's, uh, it's built around um, in the 1950s. Uh, what's the guy, the guy who coined... The phrase Alan Freed. Alan Freed, right. Yeah, he would eventually left business in disgrace. But yes, 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 for payola scandal. Uh Um, And I'll probably do the same at some point. (laughs) But uh, I'll just excuse, I'll let myself out. But um, but yeah, uh, Alan Freed did, I loved that he always did these rock and roll touring shows where Mm -hmm. he would take a bill like this, except it was like 
Little Richard, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, and one other band. Like Bo Diddley. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they would each play three songs and they would play the hit that was just like locked in like their biggest hit. And then they would play the B-side maybe. And, and then the third song would be either their next single or maybe a cover that even more people would recognize. And so that's what this is based on, that each of these artists are going to do short sets where they're going to play like their biggest lookout hits. That's the whole um, point of it. And so it's just basically a chance for you know, this has been a very, 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 as everyone knows, an incredibly difficult year, especially in your country, uh, both uh, health-wise, politics, everything has been a gong show. Wait, and politics? This, what's, what's <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, even in a coma. Um, but it's, it, you know, this, the whole point of this is like me as a neutral Canadian, I discussed this idea with Chris Applegren and it, it was just about like, let's bring people together. Let's just have it. Let's like, like, it's just about nostalgia. Like let's not make any bones about it. Let's just bring people together. Let's just hear these songs. Let's see them and hear them perform live in an intimate space because weirdly zoom can be quite intimate and can be a, a, a weirdly emotional online medium. And so they'll be, you know, like you and I are talking right now, It'll be Dr. Frank in one of these little boxes, but he'll be performing his most well-known lookout songs. And then he'll be surrounded by however many hundreds of lookout fans from around the world, all in their little boxes watching. I love it. I love it. That's going to be so much fun. Yeah. We are looking forward to it. It's a bit of a, gong show organizing the whole thing but it's also been a pleasure reconnecting no one everyone's just said yes we already have the full lineup booked for the second lookout zoom out which is they're the last sunday of every month and we'll see like my i my brain kind of thinks in threes so we're thinking like we'll go with three and we'll see after that because after that you know it's going to be April and it's going to start getting warmer. And I think maybe people want to be on zoom a little less and maybe we'll start all getting vaccinated. Your country's way ahead with the vaccinations in Canada is dude. I'm looking at health. I'm feeling like I'm going to be vaccinated around Halloween. Like I'm not going anywhere based on the way things are going. Yeah. I'm sitting right here in front of this mic for a while. You and I are the same age. I'm looking at September, but it'll probably be pushed back Mm -hmm. July actually. And by my the age same age, July. By the same age, you mean we're thirty-five, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we we we're at the end of the line. Going back to some of the bands we're talking about, some some lookout history. You mentioned Pansy Division, yeah, open, openly gay punk band. Yes, the first revolutionary. I give Green Day credit when they left Lookout, when they put out that first record on Reprise, when they uh, put out Dookie, they took Pansy Division out on tour with them. Yes, like. For the Dookie tour to, I mean, Pansy Division played Madison Square Garden, you know, and, and the, the, here's, a, here's a great picture of, uh, there's Billy Joe and there's John Ginoli and that's backstage. Uh, I can't remember where that is, but there's another shot of um, Pansy Division with the guys from Green Day. This is from 
uh, John Ginoli's amazing book, Deflowered, My Life in Pansy Division. And the incredible thing about Pansy Division, I, I give them a ton of credit because they broke down a lot of barriers in right. punk and in music in general. They were the first fully out punk rock band in history, in the world. They did it. And they, on that Green Day tour, they faced abuse from the mainstream fans that did not understand. I mean, pure homophobia that we would not expect now outside of a Duck Dynasty cast reunion. You know, I mean, uh, you know, like this, I can't believe, like some of the stories in this book, I'm like, I cannot believe that they were treated like that, you know, bottled at some of these arenas just for singing these outrageous, outrageously forward and amazing songs, but they persevered and they did it. And I have nothing but respect for them. And they're still together. In fact, this year is their 30th anniversary as a band. They formed in Pansy Division formed in 1991 and they have played a thousand shows in something like 18 countries around the world. So it'll be a thrill to hear some of those stories and hear some of those songs uh, from John Ginoli uh, at the zoom out as well. I'm glad you mentioned the biography. I have not read that yet. I'm always looking for good rock books. Well, Hey, do you, I, I don't know if you, if you have uh, this one, James, this is by some, some guy named Grant Lawrence. It's called dirty windshields. The best and the worst of the smugglers tour diaries. So, uh, one of the reasons that I have a good memory is because I kept a diary the entire time, and uh, so I, I kept tour diaries everywhere. So I know exactly what happened at any given show on any given night because that night in the van or at the hotel, I, I scribbled down the craziness that happened at Seventh Street Entry in Minneapolis in the summer of 1994 or whatever. Yeah. So uh, that's what that book is all about. I love tour diary stuff and, and we will read that. I mean, I, I remember the first time I read our band could be your life. I'm like, yeah, I want, I want every book I read to be just like that. Yeah. That's an amazing one. And that was a huge influence on me. And it's, it's about three feet over there. <laughs> it's so good. So going back to your band, going back to the smugglers, yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned 1996 was selling the sizzle like the big moment was that that was our high water mark. Yeah. I mean, it was the first record on lookout. And I remember like we, you know, the smugglers, this is what happened. We went from before lookout, we went from, we would always tour the States. We loved touring the States as a Canadian band. It was very exotic and glamorous for us as Canadians. We would grow up um, watching American culture. And so, you know, we, any city we went into, our reference point would be the TV show that happened in and around that town. Like if we went through Phoenix, it was like, oh, there was that that show, that sitcom Alice that with the diner, Mel and all that, and, and oh, the waitresses, you know, and that was our reference point for Phoenix, you know, and Dallas, of course, the show and all this stuff. And over <laughs> and over and over, that would be because we were raised on television in the 70s and 80s and uh into the 90s and that was it so that was really thrilling for us but our shows as i as i talk about in dirty windshields 
you know, it would be like in the States, it would be like, you know, a couple of good shows here. Maybe we'd luck out and get on a good bill in Los Angeles and, and San Diego. But then like the next night in Phoenix, you know, it'd be, we'd be playing like the, the night after anal mucus packed the place and it'd be on a Monday and we'd be on open mic night. It'd be like <laughs> open mic night and smugglers, like the sort of spinal <laughs> tap moments. And I, you know, I remember one time in Chicago, actually, uh, we love playing this uh, amazing place. I think it was on Lincoln Avenue called Lounge Axe. Oh yeah. Uh, run by Sue Miller, an old friend of ours, mm -hmm. and uh, who I think might have been married to Jeff Tweedy. Jeff Tweedy from mm -hmm. Wilco, yeah, back when he was in Uncle Tupelo. Mm -hmm. And so we would go and play this amazing bar. And uh, I remember we were so excited because Sue had booked us to play with the Reverend Horton Heat at Lounge Axe. We were going to be, Smugglers are going to be opening. We're like, it's going to be packed. It's going to be so amazing. And we got there and seemed a little quiet outside of Lounge Axe that, that night. And we got there a little late and there was a sign on the door and it said, Reverend Horton Heat canceled due to illness. And then there, were, there was a handwritten brackets, Smugglers still playing. <laughs> and it was it was we our our just our spirits just sank you know like because we we weren't that well known in chicago yet and we became well known thanks to lookout but not then we were on pop llama and it just wasn't so we played because reverend horton heat didn't play we played to pretty much an empty room but the one lesson I've learned in rock and roll is you never know who That's it. is in the room. So the people that were in the room were these incredibly influential, amazing people. One of the greatest rock and roll photographers in the United States was there, Marty Perez. Oh, yeah. Who took a bunch of great photos of us. Um, Jeff Tweedy was at the bar uh, because he was married to the owner. Um, the guys from the cocktails were there. I don't know if you remember. Oh, them. I used to love the cocktails. Yeah, yeah this crazy jazz. Yeah. Weirdness. We ended up staying with them that night. And uh, who there was another um, the the guy who not there was one the, oh, I know was his name Blackie from Urge Overkill. Blackie Onassis. Yes. So I'm like, there's this place is empty, but the five people who are here are like indie rock royalty. And we, you know, I, of those friendships, we remain friends with Marty Perez and we remain friends with Mark from the Cocktails and Sue, not so much with Blackie or uh, Jeff Tweedy, but it was still fun to play for them. I so you never that. knew. But then... So we went from from those sorts of situations, uh, and most of those connections were through our friends and the Young Fresh Fellows, who was who would do great shows at, at um, Lounge Axe. But um, but so those are the Young Fresh Fellows Pop Lama connections. Then we switched over to Lookout, and we went to a much younger all ages yeah. scene that was more in our kind of because we were barely legal to get into these places that like lounge acts. So we went to the all ages scene and it literally went from, you know, nights like in Phoenix and in Chicago to just getting onto package tours, you know, like this, 
where it was two or three lookout bands and every single show from coast to coast was sold out and packed. And we were just in, it was like a light switch. And our career just went from middling to just boom. And, you know, at the end of a show, we were used to selling one, two, three, a couple of CDs a night, maybe a couple of LPs, maybe a couple of T-shirts if they really pitied us. And all of a sudden, our merchandise was flying. Like, we couldn't believe it. I remember we were in, like, playing in Philadelphia with the Mr. T Experience or the Queers or something like that. And I remember clearly our merchandise guy, Ska T, the Canadian king of Ska, he would come with us and sell merchandise for us. He came up and said, we sold $1,000 in T-shirts tonight. And I, I like... I just got him to repeat it over and over. So my, the rusty cogs in my drunken brain could understand what he was saying to me. We broke a thousand dollars in t-shirt sales. Usually he would hand me a, a couple of crumpled $5 bills said, I think we sold maybe two t-shirts and he was often lying just to pump my tires. You know, it was maybe one shirt. And that was, that was what it was like. It, if it had that lookout logo, these CDs yeah. and the LPs and the T-shirts would just fly. And the, the T-shirts would sell if you put the lookout logo with the eyes sure. on the back of it. I mean, we, I remember being at, like at the Trocadero in Philadelphia where you could go up into the balcony and there would be a thousand kids on the floor rocking out to the Mr. T experience or whatever. And it would just be white T-shirts with the lookout logo on all the t-shirts and I would be thinking like we are in a happening and it's freaking me out. This we're, this is it. Like we we're in this moment and we just got to ride this wave. Yeah. And we did, we, we, you know, that lookout our, our connection with lookout took us right around the world. That's amazing. I, I do want to uh, correct myself. I hate giving wrong information. I, I'm sure you'll appreciate this as a broadcaster. Uh, the cocktails were Archer Pruitt, Mark Greenberg, John Upchurch, and Barry Phipps. I said Sam Precop. He was in Shrimp Boat and the Sea and Cake. It's going to wait. wait me. Say the members again. Uh, the cocktails. It was Archer Pruitt, Mark Greenberg, Mark. John, yeah, okay. John Upchurch and Barry Phipps. I, I didn't hear a Mark, and I was worried because I was certain that the main dude, or at least one of them, our friend in the band was Mark. So that's good. It's been 30 or so years. So it has been <laughs> the, the memory. The memory definitely gets fuzzy uh, over time. Yeah. They lived in some crazy warehouse under your uh, train tracks. Yeah. Uh, Which could be any, anywhere in the city, really. The L line yeah. or whatever you call it. Um, they lived under that in a warehouse and it was I mean, basically two of us had to sleep in the van. It was so sketchy. You mentioned something about how you, you didn't play to a big audience at Lounge X. You played to a handful of people. I think you learned a punk rock lesson. And I think it's a lesson that still applies today, especially in the world of digital content. Everyone in the audience has an audience. Like this idea that you have to be this mass appeal, whatever. You have to you know, play for hundreds of thousands of people. You have to put out an album that sells... 500,000 copies. It's all bullshit. You just have to find that small group of people who are super excited about you and they'll, yeah, a fan they'll, they'll base. propel you. Yeah. I mean, the smugglers were completely, when we got to the level where we were basically selling out 
300 person clubs in North America, Europe, Japan. That was perfect for us. Like we loved, I call it rock and roll compression. You go, if you go, like for us as the smugglers, we were a rock and roll band. We were built on the blueprint of the early Rolling Stones, a lead singer, two guitars, bass and drums. And we liked to get on a stage and explode in energy. We like to look like accountants and act like Gigi Allen might be a bit of an extreme example, but, but, you know, like we, we, we wanted to be airborne the entire time. We wanted that like weird juxtaposition of guys who wore suits and had short hair and then just like exploded. And for us to have maximum impact on an audience we preferred a stage that was about, you know, a foot or two high and we liked low ceilings because we call it uh, rock and roll compression because um, say you um, light off a stick of dynamite in, uh, you know, the room that you're sitting in, everything in that room is going to be just destroyed and knocked over and smashed. If you light off a stick of dynamite in the middle of a football field, um, it's just, it's going to sound like pop, you know, it's, it's not going to be there. And I've heard comedians discuss this too. Uh, and, you know, if we ever, if the smugglers walked into like a, a huge theater or whatever, I remember we played Nashville Pussy a couple of times and they're playing big theaters and we go, ah, this is just like, it's too big. Like it's, it's, it's very challenging to reach the people at the back that, you know, it just didn't have the rock and roll compression. But if you go into a place like Lounge Axe, it's like, okay, this is perfect. You know, this is a nice, long, dark bar, pretty low, low ceiling, ceiling. Uh-huh. nice stage. And that is where you could get that rock and roll compression where it would just hit the walls and it, it sounded warm. And you could really grab people in that visceral way that great live rock and roll does. Agreed. The bigger the venue, the easier it is for people to disengage. Yeah. And, you know, some like obviously Paul McCartney, you know, has got to do it. But there's a reason why the Rolling Stones will warm up in a small club like the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto or REM used to start their tours at a small club called Richards on Richards in Vancouver. The reason they did that was to test their sets mm-hmm. to that compressed audience, you know, to see what was working. And, and that's where they would feel comfortable because that's where they started. God, those Stones moments, they played the double door here in Chicago right. in the 90s as a warm up before they played Soldier Field, the big football stadium. What if, I don't know if you have one of these shows, but I have a show that if I could go back in time and attend, this would be number one on my list. It's the night the Rolling Stones walked in on the Muddy Waters Band at the Checkerboard Lounge on the south side of Chicago. And they just, it, there's video documentation of this. That to me is that one show Whoa, I'd go is back. Is this in like time. 1965 or something like no, that? No, this was, I want to say, either right before the Some Girls Tour or the Tattoo You Tour. Maybe the Tattoo oh, so You Tour. So 1980, roughly? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That, yeah, and I mean, that's, that's like fantasy stuff. That is. That's Stones in their prime. I mean, these days, it's bands like um, the E Street Band and the Arcade Fire who are doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Arcade Fire will, will announce, you know, about an hour beforehand that they're playing in some small club and they're one of the best bands in the world. And they play you know, arenas now. And so, but they love the club atmosphere as well. So, you know, I mean, I, but you know, 
luckily, <laughs> the smugglers, in my opinion, never got past the 300 person. I mean, when we toured with bigger bands, we got into it. But we, I swear to God, we enjoyed the 300 person club more than anything else. I totally get it. So where, where do things stand with the smugglers circa 2021? Well, when this book came out, this this book came out in uh, 2017, and it was a long time coming. And the smugglers had wrapped up very unceremoniously in the early 2000s, like around 2004, 2005, for our last lookout record. And that's when things were really coming apart. And, and uh, there was very little done for that record at all. And we, we, it just wasn't, nothing was clicking. So the smugglers got put on blocks, as we say in Canada. <laughs> and uh, there was a long break. There was like a 13 year break, but I finally got this together. And I didn't really think that the smugglers would play live, but then this really nice kid named Alex uh, Botkin wrote me an email and said, hey, um, next year, I guess it'd be 2017 is the 30th anniversary of Gilman street and smugglers play Gilman street, a bunch. It's the, basically the epicenter of the lookout record scene. And uh, he said, we're doing a 30 year anniversary concert for Gilman. And we want to do a lookout records weekend. And the Mr. T experience is in, and Pansy Division's in, and Squirt Gun is in, and he listed off a few other bands, Will the, would the Smugglers consider doing it? And we had turned down a lot. We had turned down a tour to Norway. We had turned down various shows here and there because I just knew I didn't think it was going to happen. But I'm like, hmm, look out, that community, those bands. So I sent an email off to all, all four of the other guys, and one by one, it was yes, yes, yes. And then the stickiest guy in the band is Dave Carswell, who is the only full-time musician he plays with Destroyer to this day. And he's would be the guy to say no. Mm-hmm. And, and then just, he said yes. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my God, we're, we're playing Gilman. We're playing the 30th anniversary of Gilman. And uh, it was the first time the Smugglers had played in 13 years. And people, that gig sold out 700 people in like a day, our last couple hours. And people flew in from all over the world for that show. It was unbelievable. There was a point in the show where I just start, we bring the song down a bit. And I started saying, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? And in the pit, it was like Florida, Australia, Italy, Japan, New York, Los Angeles. It was like mind blowing, but it spoke. It, it all came back to that community mm-hmm. and that family feeling. And it was recreated for that, that rainy weekend in January in 2017. That, that Gilman provided me an ending to this book. It ended Perfect. really badly but that actually gave me a happy ending. And then it's that type of spirit and camaraderie that basically spurred, you know, doing this because we've had such a rough time the last year or so. It just gives reason for people to get together and have fun and enjoy the music again. Can you hold the poster up one more time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically all these lookout bands, they're going to gather around the Apple II computer. 
And yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, there. I'm trying to get movement so I can see my screen, make sure I'm holding it up properly. So this is happening again, Sunday afternoon, 2 p.m. Central Time, noon, where Grant is. Uh, it's it's a variety show. It is. It's nostalgia. It is. It's going to be super fun. And and I'm the ringmaster. You are, and this is the first of a series. Well, you're, you're clearly yeah. the most appropriate person to do it. I mean, you- and we're pay, we're we're the we're charging tickets. It, it's um it's pay what you can, but the minimum is ten dollars because that's basically like a one dollar bill these days. So ten dollars is the minimum because hopefully most people can afford ten dollars. If you can't, write me. I'll send you a ticket. Um, but then it's pay what you can. So some people, because all the money is going to the musicians, some people are paying $20. Some people are being crazy generous. We don't care about that. If you can pay 10 bucks, you get in, you can win a poster. You can ask a question to one of the musicians. Uh, you can be in this weird, intimate zoom environment where you can see everybody from all over the world and there's going to be a chat going and all that. So, um, we're really looking forward to it. Hopefully the, uh, the internet survives, but I mean, I figure if zoom can survive like Christmas day and, For real. and new year's day, it can survive anything. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. And again, this is the first of a series. Yeah. Yeah. Last Sunday of every month for at least the next three months. Uh, I should, before I, I cut you loose, Grant, and you've been very generous with your time. I just want to read a couple comments we've had as this has been going on. Oh yeah, sure. Will says the story about the Gilman street reunion is amazing. It really illustrates how that scene was transformative for so many people. I mean, you talk about an impact that's just. Yeah. I mean, that that's the example of like you document your local scene, which is very, very important. You start local mint records in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. uh, Sonic onion records in your favorite Canadian city of Hamilton. Uh, You know, that is what, they did, and then it grows. And one of those bands often reaches reaches a stratospheric level. Not every time, but a lot of the time it does. And then you bring a whole new type of music uh, to the world. The Ramones in New York City, for instance, uh, changed music, uh, definitely punk rock. And uh, so that is very important. And that was uh, on display at that Gilman weekend. It was a it was a microscopic local scene in a concrete warehouse that went global. And it was incredible to see that global pilgrimage return for that weekend uh, four years ago now. No doubt. Uh, Bob says, great interview, loving these stories. Natalie says, one of my favorite interviews so far. Grant is a fantastic guest. These stories are great. Oh, that's so nice, Natalie. Where's Natalie from? In Chicago? In Chicago. Right on. Well, that's very nice. I, I appreciate all those kind comments. Uh, I I got a million of them. Well, stories, not comments. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> people love me. They can't no, stop no, complimenting no. me. No, I meant stories. Uh, Maddie says, smuggler shows were so much fun. Yes, uh, Fireside uh, Bowl. That's where, like, once the smugglers actually became on lookout and became popular, we would come to Chicago and we'd play our own shows at the Fireside Bowl. And they were really fantastic dance parties in this crazy bowling alley turned rock and roll venue. And then we would tour with a couple of the bigger bands. Like we did some really epic shows at the Metro. Mm -hmm. And I remember with the Donnas, 
that was over the top, crazy, crazy craziness. Your memory um, is very strong. Yeah, that. Well, I can even remember the date of that one. It was in the middle of spring break in March of 2000, and there were kids just going crazy, like jumping off the balcony. And the the Donnas at that time were kind of at a peak, and they just attracted all sorts of unbelievable fans. I'll just tell you one quick Donna story. Please. Uh, now, now I'm like uh, stretching you out, but I remember like. A couple of people would bring, it was just something about the four women being in a band. People would, it was like they were like female baby Jesuses. People would come bearing gifts for them. You know, like, here, take this, take this. And there was one crazy story where this guy shows up in Austin. And I don't know if you remember the Brady Bunch episode where Bobby wins like a lifetime supply of chewing gum and the, and the, and the truck backs up into the driveway. Uh-huh. Well, in Austin, Texas, this kid shows up in the backstage at Emo's and there's a tiny decrepit backstage. And he says, Hey, I'm a big fan of Donna's. Hey, smugglers. And he goes, uh, I won a contest uh, to, or I, I entered a contest to be, to have a walk on like an extra on the TV show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but he didn't win the contest. He won second place and second place was a lifetime supply of uh, Mike and Ike's jelly beans. And he said, I know, like, so he said, he said, and I want to give you some. And he literally backed up this cargo van to the back doors of Emo's and opened them up, you know, like this. And there was just wall to wall cartons of Mike and Ike's. And they started loading them from their van, their, their parents' van into, I think his dad had a carpet cleaning business or something. And, and it was, they were stuffed into our van and into the Donna's van, Mike and Ike's, Mike and Ike's, Mike and Ike's, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Mike and Ike's. And for the rest of the tour, we would pelt them from the stage into the crowd and almost every show, including the Metro in Chicago, turned into these bizarre, sticky Mike and Ike's fight where these ridiculous, sticky, disgusting jelly beans would be flying through the air like um, like confetti that hurt. And, uh, you know, and eventually the Donners are like, enough with the Mike and Ikes. And uh, so, but I, I swear by the end of that tour, which was something like 40 shows, there were still Mike and Ikes in the back of our vans. We hated those things oh, by bet. the end of that tour. Oh, they were disgusting. So if the Donnas are getting a truckload of Mike and Ikes, imagine what someone like McCartney gets oh, when I he know. rolls into town. I mean, I remember another one in Oklahoma City. This guy shows up. He's kind of looking a little strange, like kind of um, looked like uh, the, the big guy in Of Mice and Man. He didn't talk so much. Lenny? And, Lenny. And I uh, you know, kind of hanging around, hanging around. And that's the thing is like, people would always hang around to talk to the Donnas at the end of the night. And uh, this guy had just gotten out of the state penitentiary in Oklahoma and just, and he was so happy because he was able to literally go from the state pen to the Donna show. And he was even happier because he had a curfew, but the Donna show was all ages. So he could get home before the curfew and still see them. And what he did, it's this again, sounds like a cliche, but you know, you hear in, in prisons, you make license plates. Mm -hmm. 
Well, in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, you really do make license plates. And he made four personalized license plates for each Donna from the license plate factory in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary and gave each one to the four Donnas. And we're, you know, the smugglers, I mean, we kind of felt like Forrest Gump at that point. We're just like, you know, he's always on the periphery of these yes. incredible <laughs> scenes. We were just like, what the hell? This is amazing. So we saw a lot of that on the Donna's tour. That's amazing. All right. You are Grant yes. Lawrence. You on Sunday are hosting the first ever Lookout Zoom Out. It's a retrospective. It's nostalgia. It is exactly the antidote to everything we've been dealing with for the past year. This is just a, a fantastic escape with music yeah. we love, musicians we love. Um, that's happening Sunday, ten dollars. Yes. Pay, pay, pay what you yeah, can. Yeah, and it, and it's through a concert online concert company called SideDoorAccess.com. SideDoorAccess.com, and the event is Lookout Zoom Out, and I think it's right on the front page of of SideDoorAccess.com. I love it. Well, before I cut you loose, I want to thank everyone who's watched this live. Much appreciated. Thanks for joining us for that. And we're going to wrap up this whole 